Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode on what's new in ACLS, we have with us Dr. Stephen Brooks and Dr. Michael Feldman. Dr. Brooks is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He recently completed a clinical research fellowship within the pre-hospital and transport medicine research program at the University of Toronto and a Master's of Health Sciences from the University of British Columbia. He is currently a member of the Advanced Cardiac Life Support Subcommittee of the American Heart Association and the ACSMI Task Force for the International Liaison Committee for Resuscitation. Dr. Michael Feldman is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Science Center in Toronto and is the medical director of the EMS Special Operations Program, as well as the medical director of the Firefighter Pre-Hospital Care Program. In the most recent American Heart Association Guidelines for Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation and Emergency Cardiovascular Care, published in circulation in November, the authors ask, how good can ACLS be? Which is a really good question, since there's not much use in performing some particular therapeutic maneuver unless there's good outcome data showing that it's helpful. There are a few really important things that we can do in resuscitating our cardiac arrest patients that really does make a difference. The guidelines call these life-saving things links in the chain of survival, and they are, one, immediate recognition of cardiac arrest and activation of the emergency response system, two, early CPR with an emphasis on chest compressions, three, rapid defibrillation, four, effective advanced life support, and five, integrated post-cardiac arrest care. Now, some of these steps we already knew helped save lives based on previous guidelines, but others, like the fifth link, integrated post-cardiac arrest care, is all pretty much new and really exciting, too. Now, you might be thinking, a lot of patients who have a cardiac arrest may not really benefit from our efforts in the first place, like, say, a 93-year-old frail demented cancer patient. We aren't doing them any favors by restarting their heart. But just a couple of months ago, I was working at St. Mike's, which is one block away from Dundas Square in Toronto, which is sort of like a wannabe Times Square, and a marathon was taking place on Young Street. A 50-year-old man, who was the head of an architectural firm, otherwise healthy, running the marathon, collapsed at Dundas Square. Another runner started CPR immediately. The EMS crew got him within two minutes, shocked him out of V-fib, Got him to the ED within a few minutes where we stabilized him, got an ECG which showed a big fresh anterior STEMI, and had him up to the cath lab with an open vessel a few minutes later. I went to visit him in the ICU the next morning and he was sitting up and chatting like nothing had even happened. He did say he vaguely remembers having chest pain before he collapsed but didn't think much of it. This guy walked out of the hospital a few days later in a perfect neurologic state. This case got me thinking about how freaking amazing the care can be for cardiac arrest patient when the system is working well, and how every step matters in the links in the chain of survival from the immediate recognition of cardiac arrest to integrated post-cardiac arrest care. So getting back to the question, how good can ACLS be? Well, the answer is that emergency systems that can effectively implement these links in the chain of survival can achieve witness V-fib cardiac arrest survival of almost 50%. In other words, we can bring back half of these patients from being dead. That's incredible. I mean, just think about how far we've come since 1966 when the first guidelines were published. In this episode, with the help of Dr. Stephen Brooks, who is one of the authors of the guidelines, and Dr. Michael Feldman, 
the medical director of pre-hospital care and EMS special operations in Toronto, will review all that is new in ACLS and look at some of the evidence for the recommendations, as well as some controversies. Oh yeah. Uh, uh. Dysrhythmias. What we come here for, y'all? Dys, 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 dysrhythmias. Why we here? Why we here? Dys, 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 dysrhythmias. They is, they is. Dys, 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 dysrhythmias. What they call, what they call. Dys, 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 dysrhythmias. Tachycardia. It's a hot mess. In the heart of ya, got a weak pulse and a low BP. Give them deep fibrillation with an AED. Stop the heart, get a normal rhythm. Be a good nurse and stay right there with them. For minute long apical auscultation, the last thing we want's ventricular fibrillation. We need cardioversion. Call the nurse and the doctor and the tech and the surgeon. Dysrhythmias put a strain on the left. Decrease CO, increase CHF. We do all we can to avoid a systole, and that's the 411 from PVCC. Dysrhythmias. They is. They is. Dysrhythmias. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Brooks and Dr. Feldman. How are you? Thank you. All right. We're going to jump right into looking at this whole paradigm shift we've had in the cardiac arrest patient and the treatment of cardiac arrest patients and talk a bit about CCR. CCR is not the band Credence Clearwater Revival, <laughs> uh, but it does stand for cardiocerebral resuscitation. You know, I uh, edited this book for medical students a couple of years ago called The ABCs of Emergency Medicine, but now it looks like I'm going to have to change the title to The CABs of Emergency Medicine because with the new guidelines, it's all about circulation first. That is high-quality CPR with compressions of adequate depth and rate, allowing for complete chest recoil, minimizing interruptions in the compressions, and minimal or even no ventilation in the early stages of cardiac arrest. All this goes along with this newish concept of cardiocerebral resuscitation. Dr. Feldman, could you just explain to us a bit about what this cardiocerebral resuscitation is all about? Thank you. To understand and to talk about the cardiocerebral resuscitation and the minimally interrupted CPR protocols that there, there's a lot of discussion and excitement about, um, I think it's worth taking a step back and actually looking at the mechanism of cardiac output in cardiac arrest. One of the things that we have a very clear understanding from both animal models and from clinical studies is that interruptions in CPR are detrimental to the patient. There you have much poorer outcomes. Even a few seconds of interruption of CPR can lead to poorer outcomes. So they, first of all, they've changed the paradigm, as you mentioned, from ABCs to CABs. That's not to say that you don't have to open the airway and check for breathing uh, and check a pulse, but it kind of accelerates the steps, put them into one. Um, and certainly people who are experienced with CPR are used to doing these things simultaneously. So when you approach a patient and they look, well, they look dead, you know, they're, they're cyanotic and they, they don't have any obvious breathing or their breathing is obviously abnormal, you're going to rapidly uh, open their airway and put your finger on the pulse and check for breathing all at the same time. But they're limiting this to about a 10-second check. And I think it's quite feasible for people who are experienced at advanced cardiac life support to do this. And for lay providers... They're saying instead of spending a lot of time with the pulse check, you don't even need a pulse check. So you're jumping right into the compression phase. So what's different about the compressions now? Well, first of all, when you think about the mechanism of cardiac output in cardiac arrest, when I first took my 
CPR course oh, in the 1980s, the instructor stood up in front of us and with a completely straight face said, well, you squeeze the heart between the, the sternum and the vertebra and you completely reproduce the pumping action of the heart. And of course, that's a, a huge oversimplification or, or even an outright lie. I mean, the heart, for it to work, it, the chambers of the heart have to be synchronized. They, they pump in a certain sequence. There are valves that are opening and closing. There's a, a certain amount of time allowed for filling in between. When you're doing CPR, you're squeezing the whole heart as an organ. You're squeezing all the chambers at the same time. I bet the valves have not a lot of ability to function when they're being compressed because they don't actually have any skeletal support. What you're doing to reproduce cardiac output during CPR is you're compressing all the vascular <clears throat> organs in the chest, the capillaries, the lungs, the aorta, the superior and inferior vena cava. So when you push down, blood goes out of the chest and when you relax, blood flows back into the chest, kind of like waves on a beach. Now, that would be good if you were really visiting the beach, but you're not. You need flow in a circuit. You need flow going out through the arteries, going through the peripheral circulation, coming back through the veins, picking up a load of oxygen in the lungs, and so on. So what is it that favors forward flow during CPR? Well, probably not a lot. I mean, you have some valves in the veins once you get into the extremities and into the organs. But other than that, there's not that much. Maybe there's some residual function of the cardiac valves. So CPR at best is only about 20 to 30% efficient when you're doing it well. Now, every time you interrupt CPR, cardiac output falls down to essentially zero. And it takes seven or eight chest compressions to get things restarted. So every interruption for CP of CPR for ventilations, for pulse checks, even for defibrillation is going to stop that forward flow you had. And it's going to take a while to get it going again. So this cardiocerebral resuscitation uses models where you don't stop CPR or your CPR interruptions are minimized. What are some of the CPR interruptions that you could do away with? Well, for one thing, it's thought that there's enough of a load of oxygen left in the, blood, in the bloodstream that hasn't been used that maybe if you could just circulate that, that'll buy you a few minutes. For another, if you're not stopping to ventilate patients, maybe there's a little bit of tidal movement and diffusion of gases uh, from what would normally be considered the dead space column. So in some of these protocols, they actually put a, a non-rebreather on a patient and don't even attempt to ventilate for the first five or six minutes of CPR. Or if you are going to ventilate, the ventilations are done at a much lower frequency or they're done without interrupting CPR. So instead of 30 to 2, some protocols have gone to 50 to 2 or even 10 to 1, but there's no pause for ventilations. Another thing you can do to minimize pauses in CPR is to defer placement of an advanced airway. Certainly more people tend to have an advanced airway placed at some point in the uh, resuscitation and end up in the survivor group, but there's no actual proof that putting the advanced er airway in early and, and the ensuing CPR interruption that entails, there's no evidence that, that doing that makes any difference to survival. So some of the sites that have been using this cardiocerebral resuscitation, minimally interrupted CPR protocol, has been places like Seattle, Washington, where they've got some of the highest survival rates in the world for cardiac arrest, and places like Arizona and Wisconsin, where their studies have shown a near doubling of survival with good neurologic outcome. So now that we've got an understanding of what cardiocerebral resuscitation, or CCR, is all about, and the emphasis on chest compressions... Let's talk a little bit about the other concept to understand in this new approach to cardiac arrest, which is the three-phase model of resuscitation. 
The three-phase model of resuscitation includes the electrical phase, the circulatory phase, and the metabolic phase. Dr. Brooks, can you tell us a little bit about how this model came about, how it's different than our previous thinking about caring for the arrested patient, and why it's important for us to understand? Sure. You know, I, I really like this model because it kind of gets at the idea that not all cardiac arrests are the same. And really, it starts us thinking about the fact that the pathology, the pathophysiology of what's happening to the patient really depends upon many things. But one important thing is how long they've been down without a pulse and without spontaneous circulation. And it really forces us to think about perhaps there are different therapies or different features of the cardiac arrest response that are more, more important for patients who are in different phases of cardiac arrest. And specifically, when we think about the early phase, we call this the electrical phase in this model, we're really talking about the primary problem being an electrical one, where we have disorganized cardiac electrical activity that's caused the heart to stop pumping, but we're in a period of time that's not been so long that the problems of prolonged ischemia and ultimately reperfusion issues have not really come into play. So the most important thing in this phase early on is to get that cardiac rhythm organized again so that the pumping action in the heart can be brought back. And if cardiac arrest is allowed to go on longer, and this would be about six to 10 minutes after cardiac arrest, we enter what's called the circulatory phase. And certainly this is a, a time when there's been lack of circulation for long enough that ischemic injury and insult starts to really set in. And it's thought that during this phase, uninterrupted chest compressions is really the key therapy that we have available for patients in this phase. Because it's thought that once patients have ischemia for long enough, that perhaps defibrillation attempts during this phase may not be successful unless you sort of prime the pump with a little bit of CPR up front to return some of the important components of energy creation to the myocytes before we shock it back into a normal rhythm. And then beyond 10 minutes, we enter what's called the met metabolic phase. And certainly this is the phase where therapeutic hypothermia, which I'm sure we'll be talking about a little bit later, and pressors and other things that aim to deal with the problems of post-cardiac arrest syndrome really come into play and, and are important. And so the idea is that depending on the amount of time that somebody's being down, there is a a different pathophysiology that's affecting how the patient is going to recover. And certainly we need to, we need to think that certain treatments might take more priority over others, uh, depending on how long they've been down. And to be honest, I don't think this model has really percolated into the guidelines in a major way. We still treat cardiac arrest pretty much the same. It doesn't really matter how long they've been down or what sort of state the patient's in. And I think most of that is because we don't really have a good way to monitor to measure where a patient is in that spectrum. Certainly we have an estimate of downtime sometimes, but we really have no physiologic measures of where we are in that spectrum. So as it stands right now, the best we can do is treat everybody the same. But I think it's important for us to recognize that different treatment strategies might be more important for different patients depending where they are in this, in this spectrum. As is true for a lot of what we do in medicine, there's very little evidence for improved survival to hospital discharge, which is really what we care most about for much of what we do in the arrest patient. 
my first question is, of all the therapeutic maneuvers we do for the cardiac arrest patient, which ones have been shown to improve survival to hospital discharge? And second, what are the factors that make it more likely for a patient to survive to hospital discharge? Well, let's come back to the three-phase model of cardiac arrest for a minute. It's, it's a conceptual model, but it's useful for thinking about what's happening in our cardiac arrest patient. We classically talk about the survival goes down by about 10% per minute, so that by about 10 minutes, there are virtually no possible survivors. In fact, different things happen during different phases after cardiac arrest. In the first few minutes after cardiac arrest, uh, if it was a sudden electrical accident, a sudden dysrhythmia, somebody had maybe some ischemia through some, some PVCs, had an RNT phenomenon, and then a sudden V-fib arrest, they die with an oxygen saturation essentially of 100%. And their survival during the first few minutes of that electrical phase, if you can get a shock to them, their survival is going to be very high. These are the survivors. We have 50% or greater survival rate in casinos, for example. Or these are the survivors in the cath lab where they're in the middle of a, of a PCI procedure and uh, they throw off some PVCs, there's a V-fib arrest, and they shock without even a round of CPR and they resume the procedure. Once you get out of that phase death probably starts to pick up quite a bit. So as you're going through now the circulatory phase, patients are, are using up whatever available oxygen they have. And w once you start a CPR, you know, there's, you're going to need more than just, than just some chest compressions the longer it goes. When you get into the metabolic phase, you develop a series of progressive derangements, uh, whether it's uh, free radical formation, whether it's translocation of um, bacteria and endotoxin from the gut, which would normally cause sepsis for anyone. So when we're dealing with cardiac arrest and we're trying to study what improves survival, the patients we've got to work on, unfortunately, most of them have moved out of the electrical phase. They're a good part of the way through the circulatory phase and maybe into the metabolic phase where these derangements upon derangements are just stacking up. So in this group, how do you show survival? How do you decide what's effective? Well, you need things that are highly effective to show a, a positive outcome. Most of our patients that we see pre-hospital, the paramedics and the firefighters get to, have been down for you know, anywhere from 5 to 15, 20 minutes, often with no CPR. Uh, we don't have very good rates of bystander CPR in, in much of the world, including Toronto. And so when you're trying to show a positive effect, you can throw just about whatever you can at them but very few of them are going to survive. The ones that do survive, survive with the effects, uh, with, with the interventions that are, that are likely to have the biggest effects, and that's CPR and defibrillation. Things like oxygenation, things like drug therapy, really address issues in patients who have such severe metabolic derangements or such severe deprivation of oxygen that they have very little effect. That's why it's easy to prove CPR and defibrillation works. That's why it's hard to prove a role for some of these other interventions. We're just getting there too late. So CPR and defibrillation have been shown to improve survival to hospital discharge. What about some of the drugs we use like epinephrine, amiodarone, those kind of drugs? Have they ever been shown to improve survival to hospital discharge? There was an interesting recent study out of uh, Norway that showed that there was no difference in survival between groups of cardiac arrest patients that had died with an IV and those that had died after resuscitation, but no IV was ever started. So it just gets you thinking that the whole package of drugs as a whole in this study wasn't shown to work. When you start to break down the evidence for using any of these drugs, a lot of times we're referred back to older studies, 
case series, observational trials, things that maybe wouldn't standard the rigor of a peer review process today. And at the end of the day, we're left with not really being sure what advanced interventions are actually making any difference. We all now know the importance of good, hard, and fast chest compressions that are needed to give our patients that best chance of survival. How good are we at CPR, and can we improve the quality of CPR that we give when we're faced with a cardiac arrest patient? Another part of this question is, should we be using chest compression machines? Is there any evidence that the machines are better than us? How else can we improve the quality of getting that blood circulated? The problem is, is in the pre-hospital and, and even worse, in the hospital setting, I have both anecdotal evidence from what I've seen, but also there's research evidence that says we're not good at doing good CPR. We're not good at doing that 200 or more compressions per, per two minutes, 100 compressions per minute. We're not good at getting the depth of compression right, which used to be one and a half to two inches, and now it's at least two inches. We fatigue easily and we're easily distracted. Sometimes during an airway attempt, the person on the chest scene will offer help to the person attempting the intubation at the, to the detriment of the patient. In, uh, in the last few years, we've implemented CPR monitoring devices. The firefighters and the paramedics, uh, for example, have accelerometers attached to their defibrillator pads that measure the depth and rate of compressions. And in the last couple of years, I've seen their CPR performance improve because they're given live feedback. Here comes one now. <laughs> That's a little ironic if you can hear the uh, siren coming down our street here. Mike's just gone into cardiac arrest. When, yeah. You know, when, when, when we do good CPR... You get some indications of perfusion. I used to be a paramedic, and years ago, you would see the patient pinking up. I mean, this was long before we had any kind of monitoring during cardiac arrest. But, but you also can see things like rises in end tidal CO2 during uh, cardiac arrest. Sometimes you'll, you'll get an indication from some of these monitoring devices. Of ad, they, when they're measuring depth and rate of compression, they're giving you feedback live as to how well you're doing. So it's important to incorporate where these devices are available, this kind of feedback. Feedback in the form of feedback that not only helps you with rate, but also depth of compression and preventing leaning. So ensuring that you have full recoil with every uh, compression. Also with alarming for pauses in CPR. Any device that sort of combines all of those characteristics is going to be your best bet. I think that the evidence is out there that standard of care almost, and I hesitate to use that term, but would be that uh, CPR feedback capabilities on new monitoring should be the way to go. Okay. So there's, there's the machines that give you feedback. Mm -hmm. What about these machines that actually do the compressions themselves? And, you know, they provide the perfect recoil and the perfect amount of weight and acceleration of the compressions. How do they compare to good old humans doing the chest compressions? In terms of the, the CPR devices, there's a number of brands out there, and there is no doubt that they can provide CPR at a, at a set depth and rate for as long as you want it to go, when human rescuers would usually fatigue. It was our expectation, I think, when these went to research trials, that these were going to provide some superior outcomes. In fact, 
there's very scant evidence of any uh, improved survival with these devices. Now some of the uh, companies are marketing them as maybe, I would say, niche devices. When you have patients with prolonged pre-hospital transport times or prolonged in-hospital resuscitation, maybe during a hypothermic arrest with a need for prolonged rewarming, maybe with somebody who has some kind of refractory condition that could be treated in hospital and a decision was made to transport, but there aren't that many instances where where I'd say it's clearly indicated to use them. You know, I think we're going to get more information on this pretty pretty soon. The CIRC study, which is a large multi-center randomized controlled trial running mostly in Europe, but with some U.S. centers, it's currently enrolling for manual chest compressions versus mechanical chest compressions. And it's really an answer to the Aspire trial, the one that came out of Seattle. And that really confused a lot of people because... Everything up until that point, including animal studies, uh, human case series, human physiologic studies, were sort of leaning towards this device being advantageous over manual chest compressions, showing you know better hemodynamics with mechanical chest compressions uh, and better clinical outcomes. And then the Aspire trial came along and showed that the patients who got mechanical CPR We're not surviving as much in the short term to patients who are getting manual CPR. So there was a lot of confusion. So this is why this new study has sprung up. I think it will provide probably with its numbers and its focus on how the device is being implemented in the ballet of resuscitation um, will provide us an answer about whether these things work or not. There there was a lot of uh, discussion around the Aspire trial, and I think the, uh, the thought was that it wasn't maybe so much about whether the, the device works or not, but how it's implemented into the resuscitation. Perhaps there was a delay in providing good CPR uh, without interruptions by having to actually put the device on. Um, it might have delayed defibrillation in patients with ventricular fibrillation. So there's a lot of speculation as to why it didn't work in that one sure. big study. So the bottom line when it comes to machines for feedback monitoring... Certainly the new almost standard of care is to have some sort of feedback monitoring and incorporating both the rate of compression, the depth of compression and alarms for stopping compression need to be integrated into these monitors. In terms of the machines that actually do the chest compressions, we still don't have the outcome data to know, but hopefully we will know by the end of this year. Jury's out. All right. Here's a quick review of the changes in basic life support in the new guidelines. First, give compressions before giving breaths. Second, compressions should be given faster at at least 100 compressions per minute so that each cycle of 30 compressions is completed in 18 seconds or less. Third, we need to give deeper compressions than we gave before. In adults, it's at least two inches and in children and infants, it's at least one third the depth of the chest. Don't worry about causing rib fractures in these patients. It's better to have a live person with rib fractures than a dead person without rib fractures. The ratio of compressions to ventilations is 30 to 2. In terms of the time taken to perform a pulse check, we should never be taking more than 10 seconds so that we can maximize chest compressions. And remember that the pulse check should only be at the carotid since checking for the pulse at the femoral, for example, is fraught with problems since you may be mistaking arterial blood flow for venous blood flow. Lastly, 
Routine use of cricoid pressure during CPR is not recommended anymore because it can interfere with ventilation and advanced airway placement and is not proven to prevent aspiration or gastric insufflation during cardiac arrest. In the next little section, Dr. Brooks is going to talk a little bit about why we should only perform a pulse check for no more than 10 seconds. So the pulse check is a a bit of an issue because the pulse check can be a time when the team forgets about chest compressions. And we've all been there when, you know, somebody's feeling for a pulse and says, hey, I think I got a pulse. No, no, I do. No, yes, I don't. Oh, could you check? And then there's 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And that delay was an issue for people when we were thinking about this protocol. And so the way it stands now is that a pulse check should be no longer than 10 seconds. And that's emphasized in many places in the guidelines. And it's because the studies show that we usually take a lot longer than 10 seconds. And those fly by in a rest scenario. We should be checking for a pulse when we're at the correct point in the algorithm. So at the end of a two minute cycle, and we see an organized rhythm on the monitor. If there's a disorganized rhythm on the monitor that looks like V-fib, there's no sense in stopping to check for a pulse. We just carry on with more chest compressions and get the defibrillator ready. Of course, detecting a pulse is one of the ways we can detect when there's return of spontaneous circulation. Dr. Feldman is now going to talk about what tools we can use to detect return of spontaneous circulation and how to monitor patients during cardiac arrest. The guidelines are pretty clear as to what you should be using to monitor patients for return of circulation or to help your decision-making during cardiac arrest. The one thing you can use is the end tidal CO2, and that will come back to that, but it helps guide CPR and detection of successful resuscitation. They mentioned that you can use pulse oximeters. They're of no use at all during CPR. Anything you see on the pulse oximetry during CPR is not reflective of of anything really going on. It's artifact or it's the way the device calculates the numbers based on any kind of movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the third device might be a bedside ultrasound, but only in fairly restricted settings. If you have a patient with a potentially reversible cause of cardiac arrest, let's say exsanguinating hemorrhage or trauma, and you see a heart that's still beating with a bedside ultrasound, it might help your decision-making that maybe you if you could just fill the pump up a little bit more, that you might be likely to reverse the etiology of the cardiac arrest. Conversely, it's been mentioned in the literature that if you have complete cardiac standstill on ultrasound, it might help you guide your decision-making towards the futility of the cardiac arrest. But there's not a clear recommendation. It's not a set rule. It gives you a bit more guidance. It it improves the, the information that you're trying to assimilate which is coming from a variety of sources during cardiac arrest. And certainly during CPR, it's of no use. Remember, this is going to add another interruption to CPR. So if you're going to use a bedside ultrasound, you have to time it so that it fits within those brief rhythm checks. Otherwise, it's potentially to the patient's detriment. You know, I've read a few pieces on using ultrasound to help you with the differential diagnosis for cardiac arrest scanning protocols that look specifically for things like pericardial effusion or pneumothorax. There's a quick assessment that you can look at the um, central veins to look at filling and get a quick sense of whether somebody's terribly volume depleted. So certainly there are protocols out there that have described the use of ultrasound in a quick scan, trying to figure out whether there's any reversible causes of cardiac arrest. Sure. So a little bit later on in your resuscitation, the ultrasound can be very useful in trying to figure out your differential diagnosis. 
early on, it can be helpful to add to your information whether you're going to call the code or not. And really, in terms of return of spontaneous circulation, there are other things that are better. And that if you are going to use it to determine return of spontaneous circulation, you have to be absolutely sure that it's not to the detriment of the chest compressions that you've got to keep on doing. There was a landmark study published in JAMA in 2008, which looked at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survival at 10 sites across the U.S. and Canada. The study looked at data from over 20,000 arrests between 2006 and 2007. The results were really quite intriguing. When exploring the outcomes of all these cases, some sites saw survival to discharge rates more than seven times greater than others. For some reason, Seattle has the highest survival rates, and Toronto, despite our fantastic paramedic program, compares miserably. What do you think the reason for this disparity is? Well, they've tried to look at a variety of factors that might be different between Seattle and and other sites like Toronto. And some people have identified uh, maybe it's the chest compression to ventilation ratio. In Seattle, they have a protocol where they do 100 compressions per minute uninterrupted. They do intersperse ventilations every 10th compression or so without a pause for ventilation. They maybe have better response times. They certainly have published better response times than we have in cities like Toronto. Less traffic, uh, smaller city. Uh, They have a bystander CPR rate that's second to none in the world. And maybe we should look at ways of uh, increasing our bystander CPR rate. Right now, uh, our EMS dispatchers are giving pre-arrival instructions for bystanders to perform CPR. And uh, we're still in the uh, high single digits or maybe low 10% range, whereas Seattle is 20 to 40% of bystanders providing CPR before the paramedics get there. And lastly, there might be an issue of vertical access. The density of buildings and the height of the buildings in Toronto mean that for a lot of our most dense uh, areas of population, when you get a 911 call, it's not just the, uh, the driving time to the scene, but it's uh, attempting to secure an elevator and get up there to the 30th or 40th floor. And as we know, those minutes are counting for quite a bit. I think we have to take a look at what the study really is. It's a 30,000 foot view of survival rates. And remember that there are so many things going into whether or not a patient survives. There are patient factors, including demographics and background health status. But then also, you know, the outcome in the study was was survival to hospital discharge. So there's all the in-hospital treatment that goes uh, into these patients who sometimes are in the hospital for weeks. So really, the process between arrest and getting out of the hospital is complex has a huge number of factors that we're aware of and probably some that we're not aware of that go into this number. And so I'm not surprised that we see huge variability in this study. I think the important thing is, is that it is different and, and that really, it is different based on where you are and it points to the importance of process factors. While we won't get into the details of pediatric life support in this episode, I think it's important to remind our listeners of the key differences in BLS between adults and kids. Can you tell us a bit about why compressions-only CPR makes sense for adults, but not so much the way we should go with kids? Well, adults die for a different reason. I mean, adults that are suffering from a true sudden cardiac death are 
going to drop dead because of an electrical accident, because of a bad signal, uh, an RNT phenomenon, sudden cardiac death, and they die with 100% oxygen saturation essentially in their blood. When kids die, it's either the result of an asphyxial death or as the result of trauma. And their heart continues to beat for a long period of time after that. And when they finally arrest, they are so deoxygenated and otherwise metabolically deranged that it's going to have a different set of interventions needed to resuscitate them. It's not just a shock. It's not just chest compressions. For kids, it's got to start with oxygenation. Okay. So the ABCs still stand for pediatric arrests, whereas in adults, we're now talking about the CABs. That's right. And I can tell you there was a lot of angst in the American Heart Association as these guidelines were being created and as the messaging was being decided upon. You know, messaging is so important for knowledge translation, and the American Heart knows that. And when the message was getting developed to put, put it out there that hands-only CPR was, was a great thing for the lay public, and they, they were working on a single unified message that people got. But the pediatric groups, rightly so, were so concerned that this strong message coming out from the American Heart Association was going to sort of swallow up the pediatric arrests that were happening in the community and the small little footnote that said, hands-only chest compressions are not indicated for kids. They were worried that little footnote was going to get swept over by this big message. So it's a really important thing to emphasize whenever you're talking about hands-only CPR. I'd like to talk to you for a bit about defibrillation and cardioversion. Let's start with the case. A 70-year-old woman rolls into your resuscitation bay with EMS bagging and performing chest compressions. She collapsed at home at the dinner table and received CPR by her son immediately. EMS found her without a pulse, and the AED administered three shocks, and she was given epinephrine as well as amiodarone. EMS reports that there may have been a brief return of the pulse. You ask the paramedic to stop compressions and check for a pulse, which is absent, and you notice V-fib on the monitor. Your medical student, who just told you that he heard that hands-on defibrillation is safe, resumes compressions. You charge up the defibrillator and pronounce all clear, but the student says, go ahead, don't worry about me. So let's talk a little bit about electrical therapy. When it comes to using electricity to cardiovert a patient, the decision often comes down to whether you're stable or unstable. So how do you decide if someone is stable or unstable? The guidelines define unstable as anyone with ischemic chest pain, acutely altered mental status, acute heart failure, hypotension, or other signs of shock. I think it's important to understand that the decision of whether a patient is unstable or not and may require electricity is much more complicated than this list. When it comes to chest pain, for example, about 70% of patients with arrhythmias will have chest pain, yet most of them do not have ischemia. And so a patient who is in rapid AFib, for example, who has a bit of chest tightness, but has no other symptoms and whose vitals are otherwise normal, isn't necessarily unstable, requiring an immediate shock from a defibrillator. Rather than it being a black and white dichotomous decision based on a list of yes or no answers, you need to take into account other things like how long they've been in the current clinical state for, how likely is it that their arrhythmia is causing end organ damage, and many other things. 
When it comes to defibrillating a patient out of V-fib or pulseless VTAC, how can we maximize the chances of defibrillation being effective? Minimizing the time between chest compressions and shock, in other words, minimizing the pre-shock pause, improves the likelihood of the shock successfully converting the patient into a perfusing rhythm. The guidelines looked at this, and the shorter the time interval between the last chest compression and the shock, the more likely the shock will be successful. A reduction of even a few seconds in the interval from pausing compressions to shock delivery can increase the probability of shock success. There was a study in circulation in 2008 called Hands-On Defibrillation, an analysis of electrical current flow through rescuers in direct contact with patients during biphasic external defibrillation, where they took a bunch of medical students, put a skin electrode on the rescuer's thigh, connected it to an electrode on the patient's shoulder, put polyethylene gloves on them, and had them do CPR while shocks from a biphasic defibrillator were given to the patient. In no cases were shocks perceptible to the rescuer, and the amount of electricity that went through their bodies was way less than that of a North American household electrical outlet and below several recommended safety standards for leakage of current. With the big emphasis on minimal interruptions of CPR and the recommendation that we shouldn't even be stopping for CPR while the patient is being intubated, in the future, maybe we'll see continued chest compressions right through the shock. Not only that, but there's also been technology on the horizon that can detect the cardiac rhythm even while chest compressions are going on so that rhythm checks can be avoided and chest compressions continued without any interruptions. We're not there yet, but who knows, maybe in the next iteration of the guidelines, we'll be doing hands-on defibrillation. But don't you worry about a thing. Don't you worry about a thing, mama. So we've talked a little bit about electricity. Let's go on to airway and breathing. In the guidelines, there's been a huge de-emphasis on securing the airway very early in the resuscitation of the arrest patient. Hence the change from ABC to CAB. In terms of how to deliver O2 to the arrested patient, positive pressure ventilation has been a mainstay of CPR for years, but recently it's come under some scrutiny because of the potential for increased intrathoracic pressure to interfere with circulation due to reduced venous return to the heart, and positive pressure ventilation causes a decrease in cerebral perfusion. The guidelines say that we don't need to give any oxygen unless the oxygen saturation of the patient is under 95%. And there's recent literature to suggest that securing an airway can wait a few minutes after the arrest starts. In fact, there is passive oxygen delivery during CPR just from the chest compressions. CPR alone causes increased oxygenation because O2 is drawn into the chest passively during recoil of the chest. With this increased oxygenation during chest recoil in mind, there was a very recent study from The Lancet that is going to print around the time of this recording called Standard Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation versus Active Compression-Decompression Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation with Augmentation of Negative Intrathoracic Pressure for Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, a randomized trial. In this study, they capitalized on the chest recoil providing more oxygenation, and showed a 13% improved survival to discharge. 
When someone has a witness V-fib arrest, it takes about five to 10 minutes for central oxygenation saturation to go down regardless of chest compressions. So you have time. So you might be asking, what's the evidence for passively giving oxygen in the first few minutes of cardiac arrest rather than intubating patients in terms of improved survival? Well, there was a study in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2008, which showed that for patients receiving cardiocerebral resuscitation for pre-hospital witnessed arrest in a shockable rhythm and only getting O2 from a non-rebreather for the first 10 minutes or five cycles, that overall survival went from 20 to 47% compared to patients who were intubated in the first few minutes. There was another study on CCR in circulation in 2009, and with six minutes of no positive pressure ventilation, there was a 22 to 44% improved survival, and 88% of the patients had good neurologic recovery. A recent study in the Annals of Emergency Medicine found that delayed endotracheal intubation combined with passive oxygen delivery and minimally interrupted chest compressions was associated with improved neurologically intact survival after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in patients with witnessed V-fib or VTAC. So in summary, for a witness arrest with a shockable rhythm, you can delay intubation for about 10 minutes, and this may actually improve the chances of survival for your patient. Now, it's important to note that for PEA and asystole, this delayed intubation idea does not really apply. In these patients, their central oxygenation has probably gotten much lower, and it is probably by that time causing end organ damage. So for PEA asystole patients, a secure airway earlier would probably be prudent. Dr. Feldman talked a bit earlier about how best to monitor our cardiac patients and the tools we can use to help determine return of spontaneous circulation. And he mentioned end-tidal CO2. Well, the new guidelines are huge on capnography for the arrest patient. Now, this is not the little rectangular piece of plastic with litmus paper that turns yellow when it detects adequate exhaled CO2. Unfortunately, those aren't as accurate or useful as capnography. Continuous quantitative waveform capnography is now recommended for the intubated adult patient throughout the peri-arrest period. This is huge in the guidelines. It does three things. First, it helps confirm tube placement, and it's been shown that there's an unacceptably high incidence of unrecognized ET tube placement or displacement in arrest patients in general. Capnography is the most reliable method of confirming and monitoring correct tube placement, having a 100% sensitivity and specificity in identifying correct ET tube placement. Second, capnography helps to monitor the quality of CPR, so that if the end tidal CO2 is less than 10, this is a good indication that the quality of CPR needs to be improved. In other words, it needs to be faster and harder. Lastly, capnography detects return of spontaneous circulation based on end-tidal carbon dioxide levels. An abrupt and sustained increase in the end-tidal CO2 above 40 is a pretty good indication that there's been a return of spontaneous circulation. 
there are a couple of caveats when it comes to capnography. A decrease in end-tidal CO2 can occur from epinephrine. So don't think that a decrease in your end-tidal CO2 is necessarily from poor CPR. Also, while a persistently low end-tidal CO2 value below 10 during CPR suggests that return of spontaneous circulation is unlikely, you shouldn't be calling the code solely on the basis of the capnography numbers. So let's say we've placed an advanced airway. What rate should we be ventilating our patients at and why? Well, if you stop to look during a resuscitation at how fast the patient is being bagged or ventilated, most of the time you'll be amazed at how high of a rate the rescuer is going at. Studies have shown that ventilation at really high rates, like 25 breaths per minute, is very common during the resuscitation of the cardiac arrest patient. Well, why is this bad? 25 breaths per minute is way too much. The guidelines say to deliver ventilations at a regular rate of one breath every six to eight seconds, or another way of putting it is eight to 10 breaths per minute. So one breath every six to eight seconds is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And that is a long time. You're going really slow. So why is ventilating fast so bad? Ventilating faster will decrease venous return and decrease cardiac output, especially in patients with hypovolemia or obstructive airway disease. So if you're not using capnography for your cardiac arrest patients, you should probably start doing it now. Next, we're going to talk about specific dysrhythmias and the drugs we use for the different dysrhythmias. That's it for part one of this episode. Please go on to part two.